Guys, I'm thrilled to be here, and I have to start with an apology, because I mistakenly thought I had rather more time to present than, as I discovered approximately 45 minutes ago, I actually do. And so in the intervening period, I've been doing a whole bunch of mental presentational slash and burn. And so I'm going to be moving quite quickly through this. And I've also had to drop um, some detail and some examples and case studies. But I'm around for the next three days. And so if there's anything I talk about that you would like to know more about, you don't understand, please do come and find me. And I'll be really happy um, to go into it in more detail. I think it's probably safe to say that um, almost all of you work in a sector that is prone to the syndrome of collaborative competition. Collaborative competition is where everyone in a sector competes with everybody else in the sector by doing exactly the same thing everybody else in the sector is doing. And this is a very difficult and dangerous situation to be in because that is what allows true innovation and disruption to come in from the outside. Or as this guy put it very well, if you align your strategies to what everyone else is doing, be sure a single business bullet will take you all down. And so I'm delighted to be here today, and I was delighted when Martin told me what the theme of the conference was, because I want to talk to you today about power, different ways of looking at it and redistributing it, about disruption, and about the lies that we all tell ourselves that hold us back in work and in life. And I'm going to talk about three things, therefore, that I'm passionate about. How we redesign business, how we redesign sex, and how we redesign opportunity. I believe that we have to redesign business because I believe the business of the future is about doing good and making money simultaneously. And not in the old world order way that most companies currently do, which goes, we make money here, and then we do good by writing checks to causes to clear our conscience over here. But about the new world order way of we make money because we do good. We find a way to integrate social responsibility into the way we do business on a day-to-day -day basis that therefore makes it a key driver of future growth and profitability. We need to move from doing good business to doing business good in order to design a world where the way it works is the more good you do, the more money you make, and the more money you make, the more good you do. Now, I believe this so strongly that I started up a venture to help achieve it. Um, and both of the startups I'm going to talk to you about today were born of direct personal experience. So I'm a very action-oriented person, which led me to observe that arguably the single biggest pool of untapped natural resource in this world is human good intentions that never translate into action. And then I realized, coming from a background of 28 years working in brand building, marketing, and advertising, that there is another equally powerful untapped pool of resource, which is corporate good intentions. Because companies have good intentions too, but just like people, they find it really hard to find quick, easy, simple ways to act on them, importantly in a corporate context, in ways that make sense for and actively help drive their business. 
So I saw an opportunity to bring those two things together, human good intentions and corporate good intentions, and turn them into collective action. I started a venture called If We Ran the World, which is enterprise marketing software which is designed to activate marketing programs to take any goal, business, marketing, strategic, and break it out into micro-actions. Our atomic unit is the micro-action in the same way the atomic unit of Twitter is the tweet. A micro-action is like the action equivalent of 140 characters or less. It's an incredibly small, simple, easy-to-do action, so easy to do, why wouldn't you do it? So if Facebook is the social graph and Twitter is the interest graph, I designed If We Ran the World to be the action graph. But I'm trying to do something much more difficult than Facebook and Twitter, which is get people to do shit in the real world. It's going to take a whole lot longer. But what If We Ran the World ultimately delivers is something that I call action branding, which is where you self-identify and self-express, whether you are a person, a brand, or a company, as I am what I do. I am the sum of my actions. Most brands um, in their marketing programs currently are focused on co-creation. They invite consumers to create content and to share it. I believe the future is about co-action. Brands and consumers micro-acting together to create impacts in the real world that benefit consumers, benefit society, and benefit the brand and its business. I believe the business model of the future is shared values plus shared action equals shared profit, financial profit and social profit. When you and your audience come together on the basis of shared values, when they're then enabled to act on those values together, you create something that benefits the world and benefits your business. Now, if we run the world is a slow burn venture, um, with a slow rate of business adoption for a very pragmatic reason, which is another part of redesigning the future of business that not enough people think about currently. And that is the fact that you cannot do new world order business from an old world order place. All companies currently are old world order places. Their systems and processes and structures are born of a time when the process used to be linear. So in my industry, advertising, once upon a time, the first thing you did was you shot the big TV commercial, then you shot the print ads, then you did everything else, including that funnel thing called a website. Today, everything's changed, but the systems and processes and structures still haven't. It doesn't actually matter how brilliant you think anything I say on this stage today is. It doesn't matter what fantastic inspiration you gain from any of the amazing speakers in the lineup at this conference. It doesn't matter what innovative, disruptive ideas any of us spark in your heads. If you go back to the office on Friday morning and plug all of that brilliance, all of that inspiration, all that innovation disruption back into the same old world order systems and processes, you'll get the same old world order crap out the other end. And so we have to redesign and restructure the way that we do business. Something else that impacts the future of business is a buzz phrase. We're all hearing an awful lot of these days, which is big data. Here's my industry's take on that. 
Um, every year in the US, um, the American Association of Advertising Agencies holds a conference. This is a quote from the conference last year and a piece in Adweek um, that was talking about what was being discussed on stage. Yes, data and analytics are powerful tools, but they're no substitute for inspiring others through creativity. And that's from a piece in Adweek that was titled, Foray's Conference, Data Won't Trump Creativity. Advertising is about romance, not science. Are the perennial art versus science debate in my profession? Well, I don't think it's either or. I think it's both. The new creativity is data-informed. And note, I don't say data-driven. Data-informed. Big data equals big opportunity in ways that many people haven't even begun to think about, particularly when it comes to crafting new creative products. But it's enormously important that we humanize big data, that we humanize what we gather, how we analyze it, and how we go about gathering it. It's important we humanize what we gather because, and this is a truth in life as well as in business, you are what you measure. What you decide to focus on, what you measure, what you evaluate yourself against will decide the future of your business. What you decide to measure and evaluate yourself against as a person will decide the future of you. And so it's very important not to collect vast amounts of data for the sake of it, but to identify what it is that matters to you and what it is important that you measure. And then it's important to humanize the way you analyze that data because big data is not statistics, big data is people. And I want to give you an example of what I mean by humanizing big data from one of my favorite websites of all time, textfromlastnight.com. How many of you are familiar with text from last night? Oh my God, guys, not nearly enough. Right, everybody, you have to go to this website um, for three reasons. The first is that um, this is a website started uh, several years ago by two students at the University of Michigan. Um, the tagline is, remember that drunken text you sent last night? We do. So it's entirely user-generated. It's your and your friend's drunken SMS messages from last night. And so reason number one to visit is, as you would expect, this site is screamingly hysterically funny. You'll be sitting there at your laptop on your phone with tears running down your face. Reason number two, this is what I call modern poetry. It is SMS's art form. And when you go there, you'll see what I mean. But reason number three, at a much more serious level, text from last night is a riveting socio-cultural snapshot of our times. You can extrapolate every possible theme of human behavior from text from last night. The way men talk about women, the way women talk about men, binge drinking culture, the pornification of culture. I get a lot of inspiration from my other startup from there. And so I want to share with you one of my all-time favorite texts from this site, which is the one that goes, so let me get this straight. You would sleep with an uncircumcised guy whose name you didn't know, but you won't try the new shrimp taco from Taco Bell. That is the world we live in. And that's why it's really important to humanize big data because people are not rational. And finally, we need to humanize how we gather it because the new business reality is complete transparency. 
Today, everything that a person, a brand, a company does is in the public domain, courtesy of the power of the internet, and that worries people. And people are particularly worried about big data, about what's being gathered on them, when, for what purpose. And so this is another area it's very important to humanize. Think about it as when you meet somebody in life um, whom you like. And that might be somebody that you like as a friend. You might think, I could get on with this person. Maybe it's a colleague, a new colleague at your workplace. You think we could work well together. Or maybe it's somebody you're romantically interested in. You think, I'd like to date this person. And so you want to find out more about this person. And so in order to encourage them to open up and begin sharing, you open up yourself. You begin sharing information about you to encourage them to share back. And so as you share and they share, you see the benefit. You both begin building a relationship of mutual trust, respect, affection, liking. And as you open up more and more to them, they open up more and more to you until the point that they have reached is one where they are saying to you, I want you to know me. That's the way you gather data. You open up yourself first. You demonstrate why there is a benefit to the other person as to why they should open up to you. You enable them to do it in an environment of complete trust. And when you get people to that stage where they go, I want you to know me, you can make amazing things happen. And that's been demonstrated by my other startup, which also derives from direct personal experience. So um, I date younger men, who tend to be men in their 20s. And through dating younger men about six years ago now, I realized that I was encountering an issue that would never have crossed my mind if I'd not encountered it very personally and very intimately, which is what happens when two things converge. When today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex and results in porn becoming by default the sex education of today in not a good way. And so I found myself encountering a number of sexual behavioral memes, if you like. I went, whoa, I know where that behavior is coming from. And if I'm encountering this, other people will be as well. I want to do something about it. So um, five years ago, on no money, I put up a very basic minimal website at makelovenotporn.com that posts the myths of hardcore porn and balances them with reality. The construct is porn world, real world. This is what happens in the porn world this is what actually happens in the real world. I had the opportunity to launch this website at the TED conference, and I took a deliberate decision to be very explicit in my TED talk because I knew that audience would not get this issue unless I was very straightforward about it. As a result, it's safe to say that everybody at TED 2009 remembers my talk. As one Twitterer said, it was the first time the words come on my face have been heard in the TED stage six times succession. And the talk went viral as a result. And I do want to pause here and tell you one, one anecdote to, to do with this, because it has a bearing on the session many of you will be going to immediately following this talk. Um, Ted were very supportive about my talk, but they dithered all year about whether or not to actually post it online. And when they finally did, they were too nervous to post it on TED.com. They posted on a TED blog and they posted it on YouTube. And when they post on YouTube, they disabled the comment stream. 
Now, I know why they did that, because YouTube is mass with a capital M. I asked them to enable it. I explained that I had created this site to encourage people to say anything they wanted around this topic. I wanted commenters to say anything they wanted. Um, I said, rest assured, I'll take everything with a very healthy sense of humor. And I will undertake to personally monitor the comment stream, and I'll respond myself to any comments where I feel it's necessary. Um, my talk on YouTube has now been viewed, um, I think it's over 500,000 times. There is a comment stream of over 2,000 comments, and I've responded personally to over 90% of those comments. And I've done that for three reasons. The first is, I'll be frank, enormous entertainment value for me. Because while there are many very positive comments, there are also many very negative ones. And the negative ones all fall into one group. They are generally young men, sometimes older men, but usually young, hiding behind the veil of anonymity that a username affords, hurling obscene abuse at me. So when somebody posts, who'd want to come on her wrinkled old face anyway, shriveled up old hag, he never expects that Cindy Gallup will respond to him personally, publicly, openly, and with a sense of humor. So to that young gentleman, I said, I know. I could really do with those facials, right? To the one who posted, any young guys fucking her can only be doing so out of pity, I posted, fortunately, a number of guys in their 20s like to do charity work. So reason number one, enormous entertainment value for me. Reason number two, this is my chance to do something I feel very strongly about, which is the online equivalent of tapping someone on the shoulder and saying, look me in the eye and say that to my face. Which is why, whenever I respond, I always sign it off with whatever they said to me. Yours, shriveled old hag. Yours, wrinkled old bag. Because that's me going, look in black and white at what you just flung unthinkingly out into the blogosphere, coming back at you from the person you said it to. How does that feel now? And the third reason is, this is my one chance to open up their minds. When I reply directly to a YouTube commenter, they will read what I have to say because it's coming to them personally. They may choose to shrug it off, they may choose to ignore it, but it's my one chance to get them to think differently about the topic under discussion. The results of doing this have been astonishing, even to me. So first of all, um, many responses of respect. We did not expect you to be engaging you know, in this way. TED speakers don't tend to do that. Many apologies publicly in the comment stream to me and privately. And with, with the people who just kept flaming me, um, the, the guys who wouldn't stop me out of what I said, I would eventually say, um, please message me privately on here. You know, the comment stream window is very small. I'd like to discuss this one-on-one. -on -one. Of the 10 or so guys I asked to do this, nine of them did. In this entire process, I've only had to give up on one person. And when you get them on their own, the dialogue changes completely. So one of the angriest commenters turned out to be 28, Eastern European, a computer programmer, and a virgin. No wonder he was so angry about girls and sex. So I found myself going, have you thought about online dating? And by the way, when you meet a girl in the bar, you might like to chat her up like this. We became friends. He eventually messaged me to say, I met somebody. I'm in love. I went fantastic. Good on you. Then sadly, a few months later, she dumped me, wept on my shoulder. I went, get back in the game. You know. um, but I use this as a marketing case study because online abuse is like a street fight. Two people start fighting in the street. You've got to get in there right away. If you don't, other people pile on before you know you have a riot on your hands. 
Be very open in how you respond. A sense of humor is critical, defuses everything, endears you to other people who then leap on and do your defending for you. And a number of YouTube commenters said to me, you know, we really apologize to these trolls on here. And I said, to me, they're not trolls. The strength of people's responses only demonstrate how very personal this whole area is and how very rarely we ever get to talk about it. Because the whole point about make love, not porn is that it's not anti-porn. The issue I'm tackling isn't porn. I'm tackling the complete absence in our society of an open, healthy, honest, truthful conversation around sex in the real world, which if we had it would then amongst many other benefits, also mean that people would bring a real world mindset to the viewing of what is essentially artificial entertainment. Our entire message boils down to talk about it. And so when MakeLoveNotPorn.com received an extraordinary response, I felt a personal responsibility to take it forwards in a way that would make it more far-reaching, helpful, and effective. And given our mission, what I decided to do was to take every dynamic that exists out there in social media currently and apply them to the one area that no other social media network or platform has ever gone or will ever dare to go, which is sex. So our mission is to socialize sex and to make real-world sex socially acceptable and therefore just as socially shareable as anything else we currently share on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram. So seven months ago in public beta, my team and I released MakeLoveNotPorn.tv, which is a user-generated crowdsourced platform where anybody from anywhere in the world can submit videos of themselves having real-world sex. It's MakeLoveNotPorn.com brought to life. We explain what we mean by real-world sex. It's not performative. This is not about performing for the camera. It's just about recording what goes on in the real world in all its funny, glorious, messy, silly, beautiful, ridiculous humanness. I and my team curate. We watch every video. This is not you porn, Pornhub X2, where anyone can upload anything. We view it to make sure it's real. And we have a revenue-sharing business model where you pay to rent real-world sex videos, and 50% of that revenue goes to you, our contributor, or as we like to call you, our make-love-not-porn star. Shared values plus shared action equals shared profit. That's how it works, and um, I'm afraid... Um, we're not porn, we're not amateur, we're real-world sex. We're something very different. Um, I was going to tell you about it, but I don't have time to, so I'll happily wax lyrical over a drink at the bar later. Um, but the important thing is that we play a different kind of role to porn. Um, our site has been deliberately designed so that unless you're actually streaming videos, everything is safe for work. This is the site where when somebody sits down next to you, you never have to slam your laptop shut. These are icons, um, badges. What we're about was summed up brilliantly by one of our um, younger male users who said, watching porn makes me want to jerk off. Watching your videos makes me want to have sex. Like every other social media platform, we're about connecting people. We're a platform for sexual social currency to open up better communication between people, to build better sexual relationships, to build better relationships, to build better lives. Nevertheless, I cannot even begin to tell you how extraordinarily difficult it's been to make this venture happen. It took me two years to get MakeLoveNotPorn.tv funded. Very ironic. I should have been every VC, every investor's wet dream, literally. I have an idea. Enabled by technology, 
designed to disrupt a sector worth billions of dollars in a way that is both socially beneficial and potentially very financially lucrative. But because that sector is porn and the social benefit is to sexuality, no VC would come near me. I eventually found one angel investor who got it, put up the small amount of seed funding that we needed. Um, after I got funded, I couldn't get my hands on that money for two months because I couldn't find a single bank anywhere in America that would allow me to open a business banking account for a business that has the word porn in the name and does what we do. I still can't. I can't find a bank anywhere in the world that wants my business. Our single biggest operational challenge has been putting our payments infrastructure in place. PayPal won't work with us because we're adult content. Amazon won't. No mainstream credit card processor or payment system will. Every single piece of business infrastructure, every other venture can take for granted, we can't because the small print always says no adult content. Every obstacle an entrepreneur with a tech startup encounters have a tech startup dealing with sex, triple them. And that's ridiculous because I believe you can change the world through sex. My team and I are working to make sex better for all of us, to change the world of sex and porn for the better. The world of business and tech is doing everything it possibly can to stop us. Where's the sense in that? Um, the reason all of this matters is because the average age today at which a child is first exposed to hardcore porn online is eight. In fact, a global survey earlier this year puts that age now at six. This is not because six and eight-year-olds go looking for porn. They don't. It's a function of what somebody shows them on their cell phone in the playground, what happens when they go around to the neighbor's house, because it doesn't matter what parental controls you have in place at home. Your kids live their lives in other places. Or an eight-year-old is something really cute and innocent. This is the most wired generation ever. They learn a new naughty word and they Google it. Penis, he, one or two clicks away is something they're expected to find. Very few parents talk to children about sex. Back in my day, if you're one of those few, the conversation used to be purely logistical. The conversation used to be, this goes into this. When a man loves a woman, the birds and the bees. The conversation to have today goes, so darling, we know you're online and we know you're looking at hardcore porn and we just need to explain to you that not all women like being tied up, bound, gang-banged, raped, choked and have men come all over them and actually not all men like doing that either. 100% of parents not having that conversation. That's why my team and I are doing what we're doing. And that's why I wrote an open letter to David Cameron last week that Wired UK published, the gist of which was, dear David Cameron, don't block porn, disrupt it. The answer is not to shut down, clamp down, censor, block, repress. The answer is to open up. Open up the dialogue. Open up the ability for entrepreneurs to disrupt the world and sex and porn. Open up the ability for ventures like mine to do business on the same terms and conditions as everybody else. Silicon Valley welcomes disruption innovation in every other area of our lives except this one, the one that needs it most. The tech world, I'm here to tell you the next big thing is changing the world through sex. And I would really urge any of you in this audience who are entrepreneurs who want to do something truly disruptive, come and talk to me about the need to do this. Yes, it's difficult, but it is the most important thing you can possibly do to improve the quality of human lives. And I could talk about this in a lot more detail, but unfortunately I don't have time to at the moment. So um, I want to just say one thing very quickly, which is the only good thing about um, my problems with 
uh, Make Love Not Porn on TV, is that I am now ferociously interested in the future of money because that's where I had to look to find people we could work with. And I have to tell you, um, and again, I could talk about this in more detail for those interested, the future of business is inextricably bound up with the future of payments. Fintech drives extraordinary things, including the ability to completely redesign business models in every single sector, and nobody is realizing this sufficiently at the moment. I want to close by talking about how we redesign opportunity. It's very important to democratize opportunity. Everything that I would love to see you all do, we do not all have an equal opportunity to do. And given my limited time, I'm going to touch only on one aspect of democratizing opportunity. Men in the audience, you have no idea how much happier you would be living and working in a world that was 50-50, equally informed, influenced, designed, managed, and led by women as well as men. We have, we have no idea either because none of us live in that world. And by the way, I'm thrilled that this conference is 52% women to men and 52% female speakers to male. Bloody brilliant. Well done. And the reason, the reason this is important is men in the audience, it's very comfortable hiring people like you. It's very comfortable working with people like you. It's very comfortable co-founding businesses with people like you. It's very comfortable hanging out with people like you. If you want to own the future, you have prepared to get uncomfortable because working with women is uncomfortable because we're other. We have different perspectives, different mindsets, different insights. And that's why women ask the tough questions in business and in life. What are you thinking? Where is this relationship going? Or in business, why are we spending money on that? Why does everybody in the meeting fall silent when this person starts talking? Women challenge the status quo because we are never it. And if you want to do one thing that will set your company and your venture on the path to innovation and disruption, if you want to do one thing that will blow fresh air into your business right now, go back to your venture, your company, your office, take a long, hard look at it, identify all the areas that are male, all male or male-dominated, and change that. That one single thing will set you on the path to owning the future, because out of discomfort comes greatness. Out of diversity, and everything I'm saying about gender applies to race and ethnicity, come different perspectives, different insights, things that will truly innovate, and also things that will truly deliver a financial return. There is a huge amount of money to be made out of taking women seriously. And the new creativity is female-informed. In every industry sector, we have been played back to ourselves through the male gaze. In advertising in the US, 97% of all advertising agency credit directors are men, 3% of women. And yet we are the majority purchasers and influencers of purchase in every product sector. And so whatever you're doing, make sure you're doing it with a gender-equal team and you're getting that, that balance of innovative different perspectives. Redesign opportunity 
by instigating a different belief system. We are told as entrepreneurs all the time you have to believe in yourself, and you do. But belief in yourself starts when somebody else believes in you. As all of us who ever had that one influential teacher in our childhoods know. So opportunity is not in the first instance about self-belief, it's about someone else's belief. When you demonstrate that you believe in people, they will rise to that belief. Give them that opportunity. The single most paralyzing dynamic in business and in life is fear. Fear paralyzes. Fear stops you doing anything worthwhile. And actually drilling down into that, one very particular form of fear, and one that I've encountered a lot working to make make makelovenotporn.tv happen, the fear of what everyone else will think. It's not even fear that's about what you believe. It's the fear of what everyone else will think. The VCs I spoke to about funding my venture, who I handpicked, people I knew, visionary, who said, it's not about what I think. It's about what all the other partners in my firm will think. It's about what all the investors in our fund will think. Fear of what everyone else will think paralyzes everybody in business and in life. The single best thing you can do to really seize any opportunity is to not give a damn what anyone else thinks. I began this presentation talking about collaborative competition. I want to end it talking about competitive collaboration because this is how you capitalize on opportunity. Competitive collaboration is when everybody in a sector comes together and collaborates to make everything in the sector better for everybody else on the premise of a rising tide floats all boats. That's what then allows each of you to be uniquely competitive, leveraging your own particular skills and talents on top of that. This is not the way business currently thinks, but it's the way business has to think in the future. The old top-down model of making things happen through hierarchies, organizations, institutions is broken. There's a new bottom-up model emerging of collaborative people power, of collective action. People see how that applies in Arab Spring, in social media. They do not yet see its enormous applicability to business. I want to end on my favorite quote of all time, Alan Kay, who said, in order to break the future, you have to invent it. I am all about inventing the future. Too many people think the future is something that happens without us, rolls us over in its wake. I believe in deciding what you want the future to be and making it happen. Every single one of you in this room today has that opportunity. So if you take one thing away from this presentation, please take away the fact that you should leave this room, go out there, and start inventing your own future, because you can. Thank you. Thank you. I know, I know, right? But if we applaud longer, there's few, less time for questions. So think about them real fast. Put your hands up. I'm just going to start with one question. Yes, I'm going to start with one question. Um, innovation disruption, or disruption innovation indeed, as you said yourself, it's difficult to fund. Do you believe that it's possible, if you have a truly disruptive, inno innovatory, innovative idea, idea to 
to come out with a business plan that will convince investors? Or do you have to find other paths uh, for funding? Is there a language to translate this to, to, to the old money systems or not? Sure. Um, I think, I mean, in the first instance, I have to say, based on my experience, what I now say to every entrepreneur is do everything you can to avoid seeking funding. Um, bootstrap, you know, put something out there in the marketplace somehow by fair means or foul, you know, friends and family, whatever, get it gaining traction. Um, A, that makes it a lot easier to get funding when you have something that you can showcase is actually working, and B, if you've designed it around the right business model from the get-go, you won't need to seek funding because it should be making money um, of its own accord um, in any case. And, um, and one of the reasons, by the way, I say um, try not to have to seek funding is because um, being an entrepreneur, having a startup is bloody difficult. You don't need to have any more thoroughly depressing conversations than you absolutely have to. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, I began approaching VCs with both of my ventures and quite early on I went, I don't need to do this because I want to retain my passion, my belief in what I'm doing. And I, if I listen to too many more, um, and I'm going to be straightforward here, old white guys telling me, Sydney, this will never work, then, then it's not going to happen. And so, um, you know, both... both um, but both in terms of making stuff happen and not discouraging yourself, um, don't... don't if you possibly can, avoid looking for funding. It's, it's, it's a really grim process. Thank you. That's a very clear answer. I, I, I was kind of hoping almost for another, but one, but I, I do believe you're right. Hands up. Where Do we have a question over there? No? Do we have a question over there? You're all too high. We have a question right here. Can we have a microphone, please? There's two runners competing <laughs> for... You know, somebody actually invented a microphone that you can throw across an auditorium. Next year, we're going to have one of those. Yes, ma'am. Uh, hi, my name is Eva Forius. Uh, my question is, did you consider crowdfunding for this? And if you didn't, why didn't you? Because it seems like a possible crowdfunding um, project. Mm -hmm. um, Sure, two, um, two reasons why not. One practical um, and, and one more philosophical. The practical one is, just like every other um, partner we try and work with, um, Kickstarter won't allow adult content on their platform. So, uh, and, and literally, guys, I can't even begin to tell you, I mean, even finding an email partner to send out our membership emails, we went through five or six who went no adult content. They wouldn't even send out our emails. Um, to, uh, the philosophical one is um, uh, we have a venture that is very controversial. Sex, more than any other area I work in as a business person, proves the truth of saying we do not see things as they are, we see things as we are. Everybody processes me and what I'm doing with Make Love Not Porn through the lens of their own personal bias, prejudice, fear, insecurity. And so in a crowdfunding context, it's not necessarily you can get a, you can get a certain number of people to rally around it, but um, it's not um, it's, it's polarizing. And, and that actually doesn't lend itself to very effective crowdfunding. Uh, and by the way, guys, w w one detail I, I didn't mention was we're seven months old in public beta. We have uh, over 150,000 members. Our membership growth is between 20 to 25% per month. We've taken in tens of thousands of dollars in revenue. In a world where the received wisdom is nobody pays for porn, they're paying for real-world sex. Several of our Make Love Not Porn stars are making four figures at each payout. We have media coverage all around the world without doing one single bit of media outreach. In theory, perfectly positioned for a Series A round of financing. In practice, nobody will touch us. We're not even trying. But um, it is working. Well, then I think you deserve to keep the money because they, 
If, if they don't dare to invest, that's how it works. We have time for one more question, I think. Right here, ma'am. Can you pass down the mic, please? Please turn up. Hi there. Thank you for a fantastic uh, speak. Uh, I'm interested in the opportunity part and also in the micro actions that you were mentioning. For all of us leaving here tomorrow morning, could you give men and women three micro actions to do to create the world that you're talking about with the equal opportunities? Sure. And um, all I'm doing with the If Around the World guys is I'm repurposing common sense. Everything in life and business starts with a micro action. And so um, the three micro actions I can give everybody um, in this audience are um, micro action number one is um, whatever your venture, whatever your company, even if it's huge and big and slow moving, carve off one tiny chunk of what you do where you can redesign and restructure the way you do it. Because to my point earlier about bootstrapping um, startups, um, do it with something small, prove that it works and then you can cascade upwards to get more systemic change to happen. Microaction number two, something I feel very strongly about, didn't have the chance to talk about it sufficiently here, redesign, um, find something equally small to redesign the way you make money out of it. Too many people think there's a set number of business models out there and we have to use one of those, or here's the business model industry, this is the way we've always made money, this is the only way we can. Your business model can be anything you want it to be, so find a way to redesign how you make money in one small part of your business. And the third one is exactly what I said earlier. Go back to your company, identify the areas that are all male or male dominated, change that. And that'll instantly set you on the path of the future. Ladies and gentlemen, Cindy Gallup. Thank you.